Who is Jesus and why should you care? Who is Jesus and why should you care? Pretty basic questions. Is he merely a teacher? A moral example? A prophet who shared some spiritual insights? Maybe just another religious figure that you can add to your pantheon of gods? Who is Jesus and why should you care? Simply a wise sage who speaks heartwarming things, things that are fit to put on your kitchen decor or your Pinterest page. You see the unassuming spiritual life coach who's always there to whisper words of affirmation in your ears. Who is Jesus and why should you care? Just one among many religious figures, one among many ways to God. Is Jesus one who can be rejected without consequence? Who is he and why should we care? John the Apostle has written the Gospel of John to answer these questions. Who is Jesus and why should we care? As we learned a couple weeks ago, John wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God's promised anointed one. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God and he wants us to know this because according to his purpose statement in John 20, Understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in His name, we receive eternal life. And so this is evangelistic. This is essential. John wants us to know these things. And so with that purpose in mind, in John chapter 1, as we began to see a couple weeks ago, John begins this parade of witnesses, this parade of witnesses that testify to the identity of Jesus Christ. What we saw two weeks ago was that one of the first witnesses that John the Apostle brings before us is another John, John the Baptist. And so John presents to us John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the last of the Old Testament prophets who burst on the scene after hundreds of years of prophetic silence to announce the coming of God's anointed one, the Messiah. And so this is what John did, and this is what we saw last, uh, last time in John. Look at John chapter 1, verse 19. And by the way, you'll do well to put a bookmark on Isaiah, because we'll be turning there in a little bit. John chapter 1, verse 19, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And this is our passage from last time, verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so as we saw a couple of weeks ago, John introduces himself as that voice crying in the wilderness. And by doing so, he's reaching back to Isaiah chapter 40. That context, that original context was Isaiah prophesying to Israel in captivity promising that a deliverer would come who would bring them out of that uh, captivity. John says, I am that voice. And so by taking upon himself the identity of that voice crying in the wilderness, John is saying to all of the Jews around him in his day, you also are in captivity and you also need a deliverer. But it wasn't physical captivity and it wasn't physical deliverance. What he's saying is you are all captive to sin and you need a spiritual deliverer. By doing this, he paves the way for Jesus Christ. 
The voice in Isaiah 40 uh, said, make the way for God. Make the way for the divine deliverer. John the Baptist comes and he paves the way for who? Jesus Christ. The implication being that Jesus is the divine deliverer from Isaiah 40, come to effectuate a better deliverance, uh, a better return through salvation. And so John the Baptist's testimony is that Jesus is the divine deliverer. Come to deliver his people from the captivity of sin. He's the one, John says, uh, whose strap of, uh, the strap of whose sandal John is unworthy to untie. Well, today in our passage, John's testimony about Jesus continues. And so look in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after he comes a man who ranks, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And so now John gives us further identification of Jesus. He's not only the promised deliverer, but now he claims that he is the Son of God. I'm sorry, the Lamb of God. And not just the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But then John says something interesting in verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, that's interesting, especially because John and Jesus were cousins. They did meet each other previously, but John probably doesn't remember because they were both still in the womb, right? Remember that with uh, Elizabeth and Mary. He says, I didn't know him. In fact, John needed... God to give him a sign so that John could identify who the Messiah would be. Look in verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John actually needed the sign of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus to be that trigger. And God says, when you see that happen, that's my chosen one. That's my anointed one. And so John sees the Spirit descend upon Jesus, and this would be at his baptism. And then John says, he's the one. He's the one. There's the the affirmation. There's the confirmation. But curiously, after John recognizes Jesus as the Spirit-filled, promised, anointed one, how does John then introduce Jesus to the crowds. How does he introduce them to his disciples? He doesn't say, see the Spirit descend? He's the Spirit-filled one. That's not what he says. He sees the Spirit descend that confirms in John's mind, this is the promised deliverer, but then he introduces him, how? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In some way, there's a connection in John's mind between the Spirit descending and remaining upon Jesus, and this idea that Jesus is a Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And so here's the question this morning. How did John come to the understanding that the one upon whom the Spirit would descend would be like a lamb come to remove sin? Why is he connecting these two things? What we realize here is that John still hasn't left the book of Isaiah. John's still in the book of Isaiah. Whereas he quoted Isaiah 40, declaring, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He now continues connecting Isaiah's many prophecies of the coming one to Jesus Christ. 
What we're going to find as we turn again to the book of Isaiah in a moment is that whereas John has first indicted Israel as captive to sin and in need of a savior, in need of a deliverer, he now goes back to Isaiah and he brings the same hope which God initially gave to those captives uh, in Babylon and he brings that forward as well. This hope, as we will see, is wrapped up in a promised coming one whom Isaiah simply refers to as God's servant. God's servant. One who's chosen by God and offered as a covenant to his people. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Isaiah, and if you were in equip class today, we touched on this as Pete was teaching, you'll know that there's an unmistakable pattern in the book of Isaiah. There's a repeated cycle, really. Isaiah seems to alternate between uh, painting an idealized vision of what Israel should have been. God's chosen people, called out to be sanctified, to be a light to the world, so that all nations would stream into Jerusalem and, and come to worship their God. I mean, that's their calling, but they failed. And then Isaiah also looks forward and says, uh, there is yet a glorious future awaiting you so that you actually will be that nation whom God has called you to be. Uh, not just a, a national influence, however, an international influence uh, so that all the globe will know that you are the people of God and uh, they will come to God through you. And so Isaiah looks back to Israel's calling. This is what you should have been. He looks forward and says, this is what one day will happen But then he says right here in the middle, you're all awful. (laughs) You failed. You're rebels. You're idolatrous. You're immoral. And and frankly, you're under the judgment of God. And so Isaiah uh, goes back to the past and the future and indicts Israel for their failures. But because God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, he also inspires Isaiah to repeatedly look to the future and to Uh, give Israel something to hang hope on. There's a glorious future awaiting, and Isaiah will tell them over and over again that God is going to effectuate that hope. God is going to bring that to fruition through a promised deliverer uh, whom Isaiah simply refers to as the servant of the Lord. And so the question is, what's going to, or how can Israel finally be or finally fulfill the destiny which God has for them? How can they be that glorious missionary nation? How can they be that kingdom of priests? How can they be that nation uh, which uh, uh, represents uh, the creator God? God answers this question through Isaiah in a series of hope-filled passages in the book of Isaiah. From chapter 42 forward in Isaiah, there's four passages. Four passages of incredible hope. In these passages, Isaiah looks forward to a time when Israel will be redeemed and their land would be restored and they'd finally fulfill their calling as a holy people of God, set apart for the Lord and a light to the entire world. This hope, again, according to Isaiah, is wrapped up in one figure, the servant of the Lord. And so this is what we call, if you're studying the book of Isaiah, these four passages are what we call Isaiah's servant songs. And what I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that John the Baptist is actually reaching back into Isaiah and pulling from Isaiah's servant songs and identifying Jesus. And so, Isaiah chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53. Isaiah's servant song. I'm going to summarize two of these servant songs for you. In Isaiah 49, we read that this chosen servant of the Lord will bring Israel back to God. He'll be honored in the eyes of God. He will be a light for the nations of the world. 
He will cause the salvation of God to extend to the ends of the earth. Kings will prostrate themselves before this servant. Through his ministry, prisoners will be rescued, the hungry will be fed, the thirsty will be satisfied, the suffering will be shown compassion, and the distressed will find rest. Further, we're told that God himself will give this servant as a covenant to his people. That's in servant song uh, number two in Isaiah 49. Then in Isaiah chapter 50, servant song number three, we read that this servant will be a humble and obedient servant. He will learn from the Father, and he will teach others as he has uh, been instructed by the Father. He will in no way be rebellious and will not turn back from doing right or following God. Isaiah then begins to introduce something else remarkable about this servant. In Isaiah 50, he says that this servant will suffer abuse and disgrace, but will not hide from it. He will not cause him to turn, uh, the suffering and disgrace will not cause him to turn away uh, from his calling as God's chosen servant. Instead, he'll be vindicated by God. He'll be exalted by God, so that to fear God will also necessitate obeying this servant. That's Servant song number three in Isaiah 50. And so this is a remarkable description of an incredible servant, one who would come to bring about uh, not only a deliverance from captivity, but a future uh, restoration and redemption of Israel as a people. And remember, these promises are given to Israel while they're captive, while they're captive in Babylon. Because God, when he brings judgment, also brings hope. He's helping them see that their future return and restoration, again, is not merely an eventual return from Babylon, but in some future glorious return and restoration, which will have global and eternal, eternal significance. And so, again, what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that in our passage in John, John the Baptist is signaling that Jesus Christ is that promised servant. He's the one who will perfectly obey the Father, bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. He's the one that will be exalted by the Father and before whom all men must prostrate themselves. He will be the one whose voice all men must obey. How do we know that John has the servant of the Lord from Isaiah in mind as he's identifying Jesus? We know this because of two two elements in John's testimony. First, we know that John has Isaiah's servant in mind because of the sign which revealed Christ, which you've already touched on and because of the title which John ascribes to Christ. And so we're going to explore those. First, John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 31 of John 1, he says, I myself did not know him. And again, I indicated to you that what really tipped him off was the Spirit descending. And so John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God because the Spirit is upon him. So here's the question. How did the Spirit descending upon Jesus signal to John that Jesus was the Lamb of God? Why that connection? Why seeing the Spirit descend then causes John just to declare that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? To answer that question, we need to look at the remaining two servant songs in Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah 49, summarized it, summarized Isaiah 50. But now we're going to go back to the very first servant song in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 42. And you can turn there for this one. Isaiah chapter 42. And we're going to be in Isaiah here in a few passages now. So Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. This is the first of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. It says, Behold my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. What does it say next? I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The promised servant will bring forth justice for all people. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. In other words, he's going to bring forth revolution through meekness and gentleness. And he's going to accomplish all of this without fainting or failing. But notice how Isaiah begins his description here. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. This is affirmed elsewhere in Isaiah. In a couple of messianic passages in Isaiah, which clearly look forward to the coming Davidic king in Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Then in Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61, which is the passage which Jesus chose to use to really kick off his earthly ministry in the synagogue. And so he opened Isaiah to Isaiah 61, and Jesus himself read this passage, applying it to himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so the promised one in Isaiah whether it's the promised Davidic king or whether it's the servant of the Lord, uh, which ultimately we know comes to fruition in one person, The promised one is one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will descend and remain. This is why John the Baptist, seeing the Spirit descend and remain upon Jesus, knows that he he has found God's promised Messiah. He knows that Jesus is the servant whom Isaiah has prophesied. But then here's our second question. Why, after recognizing Jesus as the promised servant... Why, after seeing the Spirit descend upon him, does John then introduce him as the Lamb of God? What's the connection? Well, because John knows his Bible. And because John knows especially the book of Isaiah. And because there's one more servant song left. All of the servant songs come to a climax in the final servant song, which we find in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. What Isaiah eventually reveals in his servant songs is that the incredible spiritual redemption and renewal which the promised servant will accomplish will in some way be accomplished by the servant's own suffering. More than that, his suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation. And again, this all comes out in Isaiah 53, the final servant song. 
And so look at Isaiah 53, and we'll just make some comments as we read through this final servant song. Isaiah 52, which is actually where the song begins. It's a weird, weird placing for a chapter division there. Uh, probably should be at 52.13. So we're going to start at 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Well, now something different is happening with the servant of the Lord here, isn't there? The Lord's servant will act wisely. He will know exactly how to accomplish all that he must do. He will do so with the wisdom of God, and as a result, to be exalted. But then there's a shocking turn. Immediately after indicating that this wise servant will be exalted, Isaiah states that something tragic and appalling will happen to this servant. Something which will shock men. Namely, it says that he will be marred and disfigured so that he will be unrecognizable. Isaiah continues in verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Through the servant's suffering, he will sprinkle many nations. Isaiah alludes to the purification ceremonies under the Old Covenant. Those ceremonies under which purification and atonement is made through the sprinkling of blood. This suffering servant will purify or make atonement for the sins of many nations. Again, not just the Jewish nation. But many nations, the world over, he will make them acceptable to God. He will make a people fit to worship God in purity through his suffering. Verse 15 continues, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand, something they could never have expected or anticipated or could have been told them. What? Well, a servant comes and is rejected. He is disfigured, but then he's exalted. He's exalted above all. A servant who's rejected as unclean and unfit, but in his rejection as unclean and unfit, he actually makes a multitude of people clean and fit to worship the God of heaven. This is unheard of. It's a scandal which shuts the mouths of world rulers who could never imagine such a thing. It's unbelievable. And then Isaiah 53 verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is, who believes that this is the means by which the Lord has exercised his mighty arm of power to bring salvation? Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root at a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And that is, uh, there's nothing about him as a person or his earthly ministry uh, that really attracted those who judged things by worldly wisdom. Nothing to commend himself to the human understanding of what a deliverer should be. His ministry would be counterintuitive. It would defy the senses of those who think they know better, in other words. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Because he would come in an unexpected manner and accomplish God's plan through meekness and suffering, instead of as a flashy, conquering king, men would not esteem him, place no value in him. They would reject him. Nothing to see here, nothing of value here. And so he's rejected, uh, despised, and ultimately killed. 
But there would be far more to the servant's death than meets the eye, as we've already touched upon. Look in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In his death, he actually bore our griefs and sorrows. While we thought he was suffering justly, as one not just rejected by man, but rejected by God, in reality, he was actually suffering for us. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He did not suffer at the hand of God for his own sin, but for ours. Our transgressions, our iniquities, the punishment which our sin deserved was laid upon him. By bearing this penalty, he brought us peace and he brought us healing. And who is it that needs such a substitute? I mean, who is it in the world that needs a substitute like this who could bear their sin? Well, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so this is a sacrifice offered. Why? For whom? For all. Sounds to me like a lamb offered to take away the sins of the world. Verse 7. We see how this servant handles his suffering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Meekly, quietly, obediently, willingly, he suffers. And to what is he compared? He suffers like a lamb, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a Passover lamb which was killed to provide deliverance and redemption from uh, captivity in Egypt. Or like the countless spotless lambs which were slain in observance of the Passover feast every year thereafter, so the servant would suffer like a lamb. A lamb provided by God himself. A lamb bearing sins which God himself placed upon him. A lamb slain by God himself. In other words, the suffering servant would suffer as the Lamb of God. Isaiah continues in verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The chosen servant of the Lord would redeem his people, cleansing them from their sin through his own suffering. He would do so as a precious gift from God himself. The Lord provides the servant as his own lamb. The Lord provides the servant as his own lamb to bear the sins of the world in order to cause a people to be accounted righteous. It's in his suffering that he would take away the sins of the world. 
Subsequent to that suffering, he would then be exalted like a conquering hero. He'd be granted spoils of victory, which he would then divide uh, uh, upon those who are his people. Now, notice something else here in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 10. Notice it says that the servant of the Lord will be offered as a lamb, but it also says there that uh, his soul will make an offering for guilt. That's very interesting because the guilt offering in the Old Testament was not a lamb. The guilt offering in the Old Testament was a goat. It doesn't really have the same ring to it to say, behold, the goat of God. But the guilt offering in the Old Testament was a goat. But here we have a lamb who's operating as a guilt offering. Interesting. Why? Because I think what Isaiah is doing is he's signaling that the coming suffering servant is actually going to be the final fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. And so he finally fulfills and is the perfect uh, lamb who's offered uh, in concluding the Old Testament practice of offering lambs, but he's also the final fulfillment of the guilt offering as well. Uh, The entire sacrificial system and every offering, it now is being satisfied and finally fulfilled in this one final sacrifice. He's going to be the final Passover lamb, and he's going to be the final guilt offering. And so John follows the same pattern, and John the Baptist follows the same pattern in John chapter 1, because he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb and the guilt offering. So then to summarize, why after seeing the Spirit descend upon Jesus and remain upon Him, does John declare Him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Because John understood that God was pointing him to the book of Isaiah. The one upon whom the Spirit would be poured out would be Isaiah's promised servant. The one who would be filled with the Spirit would be the one to whom all the servant songs pointed. And how did the climactic servant song of Isaiah 53 present the servant? As the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So in our last message in the Gospel of John, we saw John casting all of Israel in his day as captive to sin. Although they may have scoffed at the idea that they were in bondage, the fact of the matter is they were slaves to their own sin, and they needed deliverance. John came to pave the way for the divine deliverer who had come to rescue them from slavery. In today's passage, we see John's testimony of Jesus continuing. He goes on to show exactly how the promised deliverer will bring about that deliverance. And he will do it how? He's going to do it by giving himself as a sacrificial lamb to bear the sins of the world. He would take upon himself the penalty due our sin. He would bear the wrath of God, satisfying God's justice, and then causing those who trust in him to be declared righteous. That's how he effectuates that deliverance. After suffering for the sins of others, he then would die, he would be buried, he would rise again, and he would be exalted. Through that victory, he would then give spoils of his spiritual war to all those who believe in him. And that's what John indicates in John 1.33 when he says that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's in this way that Jesus accomplishes everything promised in Isaiah's servant songs. So who is Jesus and why should you care? Who is Jesus and why should you care? In the words of John the Baptist, Behold, all eyes look to Jesus. You should care because this matters. Look and behold, something amazing and eternally significant is here. Behold, the Lamb 
This is he who has come in meekness and gentleness, in obedience to the Father. He's come to offer himself as a sacrifice, a sacrifice to end all sacrifices, a sacrifice which is the final fulfillment of every sacrifice under the Old Covenant. Behold the Lamb. He's the Lamb whose blood, when applied, turns away the wrath of God like the Passover Lamb. He's the Lamb whose blood serves as a final guilt offering, actually eradicating guilt and sin forever. He's the Lamb whose blood is sprinkled in order to cleanse and set apart a multitude of men and women as a kingdom of priests. He's the Lamb whose blood is greater than the goats offered on the Day of Atonement. His blood makes full and final atonement, bringing all who believe in Him into eternal relationship with the Father. And so John says, Behold, behold the Lamb. And then he says, Behold the Lamb of God. This Jesus is a Lamb offered by God Himself. Just as God provided skins to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in order to cover the shame of their nakedness. So God has provided Jesus as our covering. Just as God provided the ram to spare Isaac's life, so God has provided Jesus to spare our lives. Just as God provided every lamb and every ram and every bull presented in the tabernacle and temple, so God has provided his own lamb to atone for the sins of humanity. He's the lamb of God. And then John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sin. That is, Jesus, the perfect Lamb offered by God Himself, unlike the sacrifice of the Old Testament, eradicates sin, takes away sin. Through His sacrifice, we are cleansed forever on the inside. Whereas the lambs of the Old Covenant could only purify the flesh, Jesus purifies our consciences so that we can forever be in union with the Father. Whereas the continual offering of sacrifices under the Old Covenant signified that sins were never really eradicated, Jesus gives himself once and for all and forever. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. He is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And then finally, behold, John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world. Whereas the old covenant was given to the Jews, sanctifying and setting them apart as God's chosen people, Jesus is drawing men and women from every tribe and every nation and every tongue to himself, and he's taking away the sin of them all. Jesus is the one saving sacrifice offered for the entire world. So who is Jesus and why should we care? Jesus is the Lamb of God, God's own Son, offered as a perfect sacrifice to once and for all take away our sin. No matter your nation of origin, the language we speak, the religion we grow up with, there's no other sacrifice for humanity fit to remove our sin. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who takes away sin, makes men spiritually alive, reconciles us to the Father. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone that forgiveness of sins can be had and eternal life can be gained. So in conclusion, if you're a Christian here this morning, know that God has performed an incredible deliverance for you. The exodus from, from Egypt pales in comparison to what Jesus has done for you. The return from exile, which God would produce for Israel out of Babylon, pales in comparison to what God has done for you in Christ. Through Jesus, God has delivered you from the captivity of your own sin. He's freed you from the slavery of your own iniquity. And he's completely taken away that sin so that you can have an eternal relationship with the Father. 
God has provided his own lamb as a guilt offering for your sin. He's provided his own lamb as a Passover to redeem you from sin. He has done so at an enormous personal cost. Because according to John in John chapter 1, this divine deliverer, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in John chapter 1 verse 34, is also the very son of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the biblical testimony is you yet remain captive to your own sin. You are separated from God and culpable for the penalty of your own sin. Know, however, that God has provided the means of deliverance. He's provided the means of deliverance. Through Jesus, your sins can be forgiven, you can be declared righteous, and be reconciled to God. Through Jesus, what? Through Jesus, the Lamb of God, your sins can be taken away. That's who Jesus is, and that's why we should care. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we stand in awe of the cohesiveness of your word. Seeing prophecies given hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, yet perfectly fulfilled. See how you revealed to your prophet John how the unfolding mystery of redemption was satisfied in Jesus. Lord, we stand in awe of your perfect revelation. We stand in awe of your plan for redemption that you have put in place even before the foundation of the world. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the promised servant. We thank you that he is the one who has come to bring deliverance from our sin. We thank you that through faith in him, Lord, you have actually taken away our sin. We thank you that as Christians, we don't have to question our status before you. We don't have to question whether we are accepted by you. Lord, we know that because of Jesus, our sins have been taken away. We have been declared righteous as a result of his suffering. You placed our sin upon him. He bore that penalty. In return, Lord, you've taken his righteousness and placed it upon us. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning for those this morning uh, who have not yet received Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, we pray that they'd understand who Jesus is and why they should care. Pray that they'd come to embrace Jesus as the only solution for their sin problem. Embrace Jesus as the only Savior and only Lord. Pray that they'd repent of their sin and believe in Jesus, that they too could be counted righteous. Pray that they could would trust Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross in their place as the only means of salvation. Lord, we thank you for this. And help us, as your church, uh, to live out the salvation that you've granted us. Help us to love one another and help us to be a community which reflects the glorious gospel that has brought us together. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.